welcome to a new podcast series called Driving Discussions. We're going to be discussing all of the forces that affect road fuels globally, and this episode is going to focus on the US renewable fuel standard. Driving Discussions is brought to you by Argus Media, which is a leading independent provider of energy and commodity pricing information. My name is John Demopoulos, and I'm the Vice President of North American Refined Products here at Argus. And I'm Elliot Blackburn. I'm senior reporter for Downstream and Fuels. Elliot, thank you very much for being with us. Yeah, great. You and I have talked about the RFS, the Renewable Fuel Standard, plenty. And I think it might be worth us just going through real quick what the RFS is, what RINs are, how this whole program functions. I mean, can you give us a sense for how all of this works? Sure. The Renewable Fuel Standard has been in place for over a decade, and this is a program that requires refiners and importers and certain other companies to ensure each year that a minimum volume of renewables blends into the gasoline and diesel that they add to the U.S. fuel supply. EPA goes through a process every year where they set that number. Uh, It's argued about through the summer, and then it gets set usually in the fall, and these companies then shoot for that target the very next year. It's a really important program for the biofuels community, particularly ethanol and also biodiesel producers in the U.S. and abroad, because it basically creates a market for blending that fuel into the U.S. So now, how how do companies demonstrate that they have actually um, fulfilled their mandate for biofuels blending. This is, this is where the RINs come in, right? Sure. Uh, yeah, the way that you track that is through a number called a renewable identification number. And this is a credit that's associated with every single gallon of uh, ethanol or biodiesel or other fuel uh, that's valid under the program. And this is separated when companies blend this into the U.S. fuel supply, so it becomes a tradable credit that demonstrates that, oh, we added this gallon of fuel into the supply. Refiners can either sell these, they buy these to show their compliance, and they have to acquire enough of them to meet their mark uh, for the given compliance year. Right. So if I'm a refiner, every time I produce a gallon of gasoline or diesel, I I incur this RIN debt, I suppose. I, I incur the obligation to turn in a certain number of RINs to the EPA at the end of the compliance period. Right. If that fuel goes into the U.S. fuel supply, and we'll talk about that later. There's an alternative that has come up and been a bigger deal over the past three years, and that is a waiver program for small refineries. These are refineries that process uh, 75,000 barrels a day of crude or less and can show the EPA that the program creates a hardship. These exemptions were fairly rare in the past, but they've been used much, much more under President Donald Trump's administration, and it's helped drive a lot of volatility in the market for these credits over the past few years. Gotcha. And of course, we at Argus have market prices that we assess for all of these RINs, all the way from uh, the ethanol down to the cellulosic. Now, I think that the matter that we've been dealing with recently, as you said earlier, is this volatility in the RIN market. Prices seeming to go up and down in all directions almost daily. Just give us a sense for what's what's behind that, what's driving these big price moves in the RIN markets. Sure. So the biggest driver of price changes under the current administration has been how the administration uses special waivers of the program for small refineries. And the controversy here is that because those refineries can receive exemptions, the administration, kind of in the interest of some would say fairness, some would say an attack on the biofuels industry, does not 
make those obligations transfer over to bigger refiners. What that means is that means that waivers given to these small refiners effectively reduce the whole national standard or minimum volume per given year. And so these, as you can imagine, are very controversial to the biofuels industry and uh, very frustrating for them because it effectively reduces the demand for their product. So if, if I'm a, a small refiner, I don't have to turn in any RINs at all to the EPA at the end of a given compliance period. Yeah, I mean, the, com- the compliance is a little tricky. If I'm a small refiner, I don't know for sure that I'm going to receive these exemptions even under the Trump administration. So I probably am still buying or collecting uh, these credits over the course of the year. But what it does mean is that once I get that waiver, after the fact, I suddenly have credits that I can sell. and I wow. can. that's a real windfall. Absolutely. I mean, it's it means that I can make up for whatever costs that I had that arguably were a burden under the program. I can go and kind of make myself whole after the fact. Um, again, though, that this the way that it's administered is, is really confusing and frustrating if you're not a small refiner that knows that you're getting this exemption. Mm-hmm. So it causes, uh, for the last few years, it's caused a lot of uncertainty in the spring. We see a lot of volatility mostly in the downward direction. What we're seeing this year in 2019 is something different. Uh, There's a very key court case that came out in January that said that the way the EPA was administering these was wrong. They said that, and and the interpretation from the court would dramatically reduce the number of waivers that are out there. And something to keep in mind is that under the Trump administration, these waivers have really spiked. Uh, EPA waived almost as much as 10% of 2017 regulations through these waivers. And now we're talking about slashing that, which means that they're not going to be waiving as much, which means that the minimum blending level should, in theory, start creeping back higher to where EPA has said they were supposed to be. So so does this mean, Elliot, that we're really going back to the um, status quo prior to the existing administration? Are we talking about now having, you know, going back to the same number of small refinery exemptions that we had before that administration? Or are we going further than that? Well, look, this is a very complicated program that's had a very troubled history under multiple administrations. It's hard to say what a status quo is for the RFS. Well, the safe kind of conservative answer to give you is that it does look like the administration is moving back towards a regime of fewer exemptions being allowed as, as a matter of this court case. And that's going to mean effectively that they're going to, that refiners and importers are going to have higher numbers to hit going forward. And I suppose if we, I mean, I I do want to talk a bit more about the the politics of that, but if we take that down to the level of road fuel pricing, even sort of pump level pricing, I suppose we're talking about a knock-on impact on gasoline and diesel prices, right? There should be, yeah. I mean, the argument all along has been, one of the arguments all along has been that these are costs that are passed through straight through the consumer. So if compliance with this program goes up, the refiners, the retailers are going to pass those costs on to the consumer. Sometimes that works out as a discount. Sometimes that works out as a premium. It's really difficult to say how exactly that lands for a driver at the pump. But what is known is that right now, credit prices associated with this program for refiners, for importers, and for folks trading in the RINs market, those prices are definitely going one direction, and that's up. So let's just think again about policy. So we've got these small refinery exemptions being cancelled. 
we we have small refineries which were previously getting, as you said, a, a windfall at the end of the compliance period, where suddenly they were potentially able to sell off all of the RINs that they had accumulated over that time. For some of them, that windfall has now gone away. Are we going to see more of this? Or do we expect to see more court cases, more cancellations, the number of exemptions continuing to drop? Well, look, the one thing you can absolutely count on with the RFS is for there to be more lawsuits. No matter what happens, either direction, at the end of the day, the EPA is going to get sued. So you can absolutely count on that. Some of the other things that we can expect, I mean, this is an issue that I don't think the Trump administration really appreciated how complicated and tricky it was going to be for them when they got into it. I think early on they saw this as a quick win to just go ahead and satisfy the small refiners and the refining industry in general by giving them some lower credit prices through the use of this waiver program. They maybe didn't appreciate how furious this was going to make corn farmers, some soybean farmers, and the biofuels industry, and, you know, rural ag economy at large. This has been an issue that has dogged the Trump administration for two years. Arguably, it brought down the first EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, and has definitely not given any respite to the current EPA administrator, Andrew Wheeler. This is an issue that even after the biofuels industry got a win out of the Trump administration through last summer's introduction of year-round sales of higher ethanol blends of gasoline, while they were on the stage with Trump, they brought it up again. And so this dogged the Trump administration again all summer and culminated in a complicated rule-setting process for the minimum volumes that we had coming into this year. And then the court case just kind of blew that up again in January. So this has been a very tricky issue for the Trump administration. And it's because it pits two camps that would that the Trump administration at least would like to have be very solid bases for the Trump campaign. One is rural voters and ag voters and farmers, particularly corn and soybean. And the other is the manufacturing base that he wants, which is going to be refinery workers, you know, unions that um, are in swing states and manufacturing bases that, you know, this is relief that was going to them and support that he wants. And they can't both win, right? It's, it's, one, it's almost one against the other, a zero-sum game. More profits for one means, you know fewer profits for the other. Is that the right way of thinking about it? Right. President Trump over and over again has talked about seeking a win-win on this issue, and it's just not clear what that could possibly be. It, it really seems like a zero-sum game. More gasoline sales. That's the only win-win. <laughs> could be. Now, do we then, you know, we, we can see that this is impacting, clearly it's impacting the D6 ethanol RIN, so the RIN that one is able to detach when one blends um, ethanol into gasoline. Are we seeing the other RINs impacted by this kind of period of volatility as well? Is it, is it everything at once? Well, I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces going on. So, yes, right now the, the RIN that's associated with blending ethanol into gasoline is climbing. And that's partly because the U.S. has never actually filled the maximum amount of ethanol that is allowed to be blended into gasoline under this program. We've, we've always kind of fallen short just because the gasoline demand isn't there, and there's some other complicated reasons for that. But ethanol RINs are absolutely climbing. There's another RIN that's associated with biodiesel blending that's often used as a kind of a, a supplement. Uh, it's part of it's required, but it's also used to kind of pad out demand in other areas under this program. 
That is being affected by a tax program that was extended belatedly uh, late last year. That's the Blenders tax credit. So it has some other dynamics going on right now that are not making it necessarily as responsive, uh, just purely responsive to this court case. What we can say very simply, though, is that the Argus assessed cost per gallon of complying with this program for refiners is absolutely marching up. Mm. Where um, are we now? What, what sort of price are we at? Well, where we're sitting here in late February is it's climbed well above five cents per gallon, which wow. is the highest it's yeah. been in almost two years. Yeah, that's that's higher than the um, the tier three sulfur cost for the average uh, average barrel from last year. So that's a good number to add into the the overall cost. Sure, and a thing to remember is that when refiners have dealt with this before, when we had very high compliance costs under this program, there were two tracks that they tried to do back in 2013 to deal with it. One was to make way more jet fuel which does not incur any kind of obligation under the program. The other was to export, because fuel that's not consumed in the U.S. doesn't need to jump through these compliance hurdles. This year with the coronavirus and the deep slash and global travel, uh, jet fuel fuel. is not a good play. So what we could, though, see is depending on, again, how the global economy is doing, what kind of fuel demand we see in Latin America and other traditional places for the U.S. exports, we could see as that cost per gallon climbs for domestic use, and as you point out, you've got sulfur credits, you've got other costs associated with different regulatory programs for the U.S. market. Certainly there's going to be an incentive for at least some refiners who can to place those barrels overseas and, and get away from those costs. Now, now, just you know, before we before we close, give us some perspective. You know, we're not. This isn't rin sanity, is it? We're not. We're not back at those very high levels that we had when, you know, I guess five, six years ago, maybe more than that. We we felt like we were close to hitting this theoretical blend wall, where it, we simply couldn't blend enough biofuels into the road fuel pool to generate the rins that were going to be required by this program. And we, you know, you remember we did see very high prices. We're not really there, are we? No. I mean, right. You're talking about a situation five years ago when everyone, everyone realized that there, the law required way more ethanol than could possibly be blended in at the time. Right. We saw, we were talking prices then. I mean, today we're talking about prices in the 30 cent range, 40 cent range, which is very high for what we've seen in recent history. Back then, prices were peaking above $1.50. So we're definitely not there and certainly not suggesting we're going to be there. But, you know, prices are on the march and refiners are savvier since then and they have more tools in which to deal with. So the responses may be more subtle. Excellent. And, and I, can, I can certainly draw everyone's attention to the various indexes that Argus has for these RIN prices, renewable volume obligation, LCFS credits, which I know we'll talk about another time, and even the tier three sulfur credits. So with that, thank you, Elliot. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do be sure to tune in for the other episodes um, in this series, Driving Discussions. If you want more information about U.S. refined product markets, you can look at Argus U.S. products and Argus America's biofuels. Um, and of course, we have two conferences coming up, up focused on refined products, Argus Global Gasoline in Amsterdam and Argus Clean Product Exports in Miami. So check out argusmedia.com for more details. Thank you very much for listening.